Okay, Drew, is, uh, is the Skype connection working? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you pretty good. Hey, man, uh, about how long do you think this is going to take, dude? I'm, uh, I'm pretty busy, to be honest. Like, I don't want to sound rude or anything. I just It was kind of uh, for me to find time to be on this today. You know, I like had to make time in my schedule. I'm really grateful that you were able to do that. And I was getting emails from your address, but it was signed like by your assistant. I didn't know you had an assistant. Like, is that something that's going on with you right now? Are you that busy? You probably didn't get any emails from my office anyway. Are you sure? Oh, you think there's someone out there impersonating you? Is that what you're saying? Or No, I'm just saying we didn't send any email. I mean, why do you think it was my email? It was said swimmerboy69 at AOL.com. And I know for a fact that you swam in high school and I know that you really like, you think the number 69 is really funny for some reason. I still don't get that one, but that wasn't you. That wasn't anyone associated with you. I mean, I do have multiple emails and there's always like, you don't ever know when somebody gets a hold of one. If that is my email, I haven't used it in so long. Oh, that is your, okay. No, that if it, like if it is, I haven't used it in so long that I don't. If it is. Okay. Because while we're on the topic of emails, I did receive a bunch of other emails from different addresses, but like one was like Drew.Manning, one was Manning.Andrew, you know, at, at all these different domain names. None of them were signed by you, but they were all requesting that you be on the show. Do you think you, like, do you have any response to that? Is, are you aware of this? Can you, can you still hear me? I don't. How, how long did you say this was going to take again? Yeah, it's probably sure like an hour or something. Excuse. An hour or something. I don't know. An hour, okay? So, okay. Okay. Right. So you're, I mean, it seems like you're implying that I wrote a bunch of emails from different, like made up email addresses so that you would like, and asked you to invite me on the show. And that sounds absurd, right? That's, that yeah. sounds ridiculous. That sounds like someone going way out of their way for a podcast that nobody listens to. Yeah, no, I'm here as a favor to you, and you kind of just hit the nail on the head. Like, I'm trying to raise the number of listeners. You know what I mean? I'm trying to do uh, you a favor. Yeah, and, okay, well, see, that kind of leads me into something else. Um, I didn't want to put this on the air, so I, I thought maybe we could address this beforehand. And in addition to the emails, I got a bunch of voicemails. The thing is, the voicemail app shows me the number that left the voicemail, and they were all the exact same number. But then the person... It's like when you get a call from a telemarketer and they like they might be in India or something, but it shows up as your area code, so you're more likely to answer it. It's like maybe somebody used one of those. Oh, I didn't think about that. That's a possibility, I guess. Like somebody masked their maybe, number. In. Maybe only one of... I don't think it's anybody in India masking their number. For one thing, they were from people claiming to be from all over the U.S. specifically. Right. And then there was one that was claiming to be Donald Trump. Okay, well, what was the content of the voicemails? Well, I'll, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and play them for you. I've got okay. them right here. Let's just go ahead and take a listen. Hello, this is Raymond Treeport, and I was calling about that pod blast you've been putting out. Other than a little too much views from the liberals, I think it's pretty good. But, you know, there's this fella down there from Alden County. His name's Andrew Manning. I really think he could bring something special to the show. He's smart as a whip. He can unclog a toilet just by looking at it, I swear. And also, uh, they say he's mean as a snake in a fight. You know, you're really missing out if you don't have him uh, uh, there on the show. This is Rudolph Eubanks calling from Newark. I was wondering if maybe for your next guest appearance, you could have, uh, like, Andrew Manning on. The depth of theology, the brevity... 
a truly blinding intellect. The show could be greatly strengthened uh, by his presence. Hey, baby, this is Terry down here in Anderson County. Listen, you got to get Andrew Manning on that show. Come on, boy, don't hold back. Just get him on there, all right, now? This is Giovanni from San Diego. Friendly and helpful suggestion for you. I just really think that the show would be better if you had more nice guys on there. Let's just say you should seriously, seriously consider having Andrew Manning on the show. Hello, this is Donald Trump calling for Caleb Rowe. Listen, I've been paying attention to the podcast, airing of grievances, and everybody here knows, okay? Viewership is down, okay? Listeners, they're shrinking, okay? Everyone here is very tired of the fake news. It's disgusting. What you need to do, you need to make this show great again. Get Andrew Manning on there. He's an intellectual powerhouse, okay? I highly recommend it. You're going met, Donald. Um, I can't say I'm surprised by the content. I just, I mean, you can't say you're surprised. Um, got a lot of, you know, a lot of fans, a lot of followers, uh, all over, as you mentioned, you? all over the United States, but I'm like, I'm not sure that I could offer any insight. I'm going to be straight up with you. The same number. Those sound like you doing voices. And I know, I know you pretty well. I know your sense of humor. We worked together in high school and broadcasting. We made a lot of funny videos and did a lot of bits and goofy stuff like that. A lot of dry humor. That sounds like you. Are we recording right now? Um, I don't. We shouldn't be. Oh shit! Yeah. Oh yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. That's not going on the show, is it? I'll, I'll edit it out. I'll edit it yeah. out. Okay. So okay. we were not. I mean, it's recording. We're like, we're not live right now. Do you know how podcasts work? They're, they're not live. Like, I'm going to edit. I'm going to edit. You asked me to edit this. I'm going can to edit actually, Can you see me on Skype right now? Like, I can see you. Angle, the lighting and all that stuff. I can see you, but none of the lighting matters because no one who listens. And you've obviously listened to the show. You're obviously familiar with it. So I don't even know why you're asking me that question. No, nobody can see you. And I don't know why you're all dressed up in the way that you are. What's this? What, what sort of outfit is this? What are you wearing right now? It's an ascot. I had I had my people give me an ascot for the show. It's Italian silk. So you do have an assistant? I mean, I've got I've got several. I mean, you're suggesting that I called in and left all those voicemails to get myself on the show. It's a uh, certainly an interesting perspective. Um, I mean, it's a very interesting opinion, and I would say. I mean, so mm-hmm. to say, for the sake of of like our time constraints and my schedule and everything. Uh, we're looking into it on my end. So I don't... Okay. So you're going to have your people on that. And also, I, I looked at the number, and it's your it's your cell phone number. You you brought up masking numbers to make it look like it's coming from the U.S. It's your cell phone number. If that's not you, I'd be I'd be very concerned about, like, identity theft or something. So we're looking into it on my end. So that's your statement. Um, pass. I'm Caleb Rowe, and this is the Air of Grievances podcast. I'm very excited about today's episode. It is finally time for my interview with my very good, close, dear, near dear, old, close, good friend, amigo, Andrew David Manning I. We had a long discussion and a great discussion, and he had a lot of great stuff to say. 
And I tried to keep it more interview than debate, and I think I did a good job at that. Toot toot. What's that? My own horn. Oh. I don't want to waste time with the introduction because the interview is so long and juicy. So here we go. Here is my interview with Drew. I've been teasing this one for a little while, and now we finally have my good friend from high school, Drew Manning, on the show via Skype. Drew, welcome. Thank you for making time to be on the Air Grievances. Thank you, Caleb. Really appreciate being on here. Big fan of the show. Very excited. Been looking forward to this for a while. Awesome. Very cool. So I, I wanted to have you on specifically because of your background and when we went to high school together, we knew each other really well. We both were in church, mm-hmm. but I'd say that for both of us, our spirituality and our worldviews have changed a whole lot since then. Yeah. And yeah. Um, particularly, I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. What, what was your background like during that time, like religiously? When I went to church in high school, we were at a Methodist church. You know, I'm not sure how it started out as Methodist churches go, but basically the older that we got in high school, the more it moved to a kind of more of a modern liberal theology. It was really more of a feel-good um, type situation mm-hmm. and just a lot of kind of positive vibe stuff. But I know that while I was attending church in high school, I mean, I probably believed that God existed, but was certainly not necessarily always acting like I believed that. So. Uh-huh. Yeah, for me, just to, to get my side of it, when things started to kind of fall apart for me because of various reasons, I, in my mind, and maybe mistakenly, related directly with the Southern Baptist denomination and maybe even blamed on Southern Baptism. Right. And I feel like I had some jadedness. And that is another reason I wanted to have you on is because you went to Southern Baptist Seminary. Mm-hmm. And so when, when was it that you made that decision to go to seminary? Why did you make that decision? Yeah. So... I mean, if I didn't believe in God, I would say that it happened on accident, but I don't really believe in accidents. So I guess I was at Purdue University doing Navy ROTC. I was in the honors history program. And um, just for a lot of things kind of that had gone wrong, I ended up dropping out of ROTC. And I knew a lot of people that had taken a semester off and never ended up going back. So I really didn't want to take a semester off. And when I started applying to state schools, um, nobody would take an application that late. And so I actually found Boyce College, which is the undergraduate school at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, in the phone book on accident. It was kind of the polar opposite of Purdue. I went from, you know, just this huge public school to this very small private school. There were probably about 500 students there at the time. It was closer to home and um, applied and they took the application. I made it in. And I think most of the people there were being prepared for ministry And I wasn't necessarily going for that reason, and I wasn't even Mm. really actively going to church at that time. Mm. But, you know, I didn't want to skip a semester of school. And when I got there, I was just really interested in what I was learning there, and I appreciated the quality of the education, the people that were there. So I decided to stick with it. And, I mean, it was kind of random, but that is basically how I ended up going to Boyce College. Wow. So it wasn't like a spiritual decision to you at that time. No, I never at any point felt like I had a calling to go into ministry. And while I was there and I realized that the vast majority of people there were there for the purpose of being trained for ministry, Mm. I certainly considered it a possibility. Like I didn't rule it out. And what actually ended up happening is I got about probably three semesters from graduation and realized that I probably honestly wasn't suitable 
to serve the church wow. in a professional capacity. And I really felt like the last thing that I wanted to do was to, you know, embarrass or uh, fail, you know, so to speak, the church. And I know really, especially in America, hypocrisy is the church's worst enemy. Mm, I felt yeah. like if, you know, if I personally didn't set a good enough example that I thought that I was suitable to be a pastor, then I really didn't need at that time to pursue a career with the church. Mm. But at the same time, I was so close to graduating and appreciated what I had learned there so much and what I was studying that it seemed like it would have been impractical not to go ahead and finish my degree okay. while I was there. So I ended up graduating, but I never you know, tried to apply to be a pastor or anything like that. Okay. When you say appreciated what you learned, mm-hmm. do you mean that you were learning new things theologically or like new things altogether or were things being clarified for you? Or do you feel like you encountered God in a new way or for the first time or what was going on inside of you? It sounds like maybe there was some wrestling going on. What was going on inside of you at that time? Yeah, I mean, I'd gotten pretty skeptical of some of the Bible's claims. I'd had a bad experience, kind of like you did at the church that I was raised in. And I just got to the point where... I really was going more so because it was a small private school that would take my application at the last minute and not necessarily because it was specifically a Bible college. But whatever perceptions and understanding of Christian theology that I had before, I pretty much just had to wipe that slate clean and start Mm. from the bottom. And I found that there was a very polished academic side to Christianity that probably Mm. the vast majority of Americans simply aren't aware of. I mean, at that point, we were already starting to get into the mindset that you can either be intelligent or you can be religious, but certainly not both. And I found that to be really kind of a false dichotomy in my experience at this school. I was learning things that I'd never heard before. I was learning things that I felt were logically coherent. And some of the most skeptical questions that I had, and honestly, at the time, I probably thought I was pretty sharp or thought I'd pointed out things about the faith or God's word that nobody else had pointed out before. And in reality, You know, there's really nothing new under the sun. And I found that there were professors there who, in the kindest and gentlest and most respectful way, could absolutely smack down any protests that I had against their beliefs. And they could do it very thoroughly um, without much effort. So really, um, I probably just for the first time got exposed to Christians who actually know their Bible, have actually thought through kind of the logical issues and the alternatives. Hmm. I actually found a specific major, um, which was Christian worldview and apologetics, which I felt like kind of complemented my natural strengths that I had Mm -hmm. in academic sense. So it was interesting because I was learning to defend the Christian faith through the use of critical reasoning and rhetoric and formal logic and public speaking. But what was also going on internally is that the faith was being defended to me. Mm. So the more that I learned about this system, the more compelling I found it. And on top of that, there was kind of like some emotional deliverance, some things that I made it through that I feel like kind of that newfound faith had equipped me to deal with things that I otherwise just wouldn't have been able to deal with. And at the end of the degree, I do think that I probably had a very different standing with God and certainly a very different perspective on God. Mm. So you know, to me, I just needed to finish my degree. That's what was expected of me. But in retrospect, I'm not sure that I was not sent to Boyce College, not for the sake of being enabled to pursue a career, but for the sake of coming to salvation and really understanding who God is and kind of what is expected of me in that process. Mm. 
Do you feel like you were saved? And I feel like different denominations define the word saved differently, mm-hmm. especially when you're talking like Lutheran versus Calvinism versus Arminianism mm-hmm. versus liberation theology. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like your salvation was an event or was it a gradual coming to a place of salvation? I think it's both. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, you've got justification and regeneration and there's different parts of that salvific process. But I mean, I think probably the foundation was there when I went to school. There was never a point in my life where I didn't believe that God existed, but I might mm-hmm. have been not as inclined to believe the interpretations of a lot of organized religions or denominations within Christianity. I think that there probably was a moment where things started to change for me, and that was actually just before I had enrolled in the school. And I think I was essentially presented with the gospel for the first time. And so my understanding when I was uh, raised in the Methodist Church was that you are going to be held accountable for your sins and that God will forgive you of any sin if you ask for forgiveness. And so I think as a kid, I probably always had this idea that you had to ask for forgiveness for every sin that you had committed. And I always Mm. remember wondering, I mean, what if you don't remember to ask Mm -hmm. forgiveness? Or what if you committed a sin and you don't realize that you did? You know, are you going to have to have this magical kind of deathbed prayer where you get a clean slate right before you breathe your last? And it's almost like a Catholic perspective. Yeah. Yeah. More of a Catholic perspective. And maybe that's not what the church taught me, but that was the understanding that had evolved in my mind after I went Mm. through the confirmation process, kind of in middle school and everything. And so the gospel that I was presented with from more of a Baptist perspective was that it is not what we do or don't do that saves us. God gave us the law specifically so that we would realize that nobody can obey the law perfectly. And so because Christ has obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf, his righteousness is counted as ours when we accept that he is who he says he is. And so I think it was the first time that a very clear presentation of a truly faith-based salvation and not a works mm. salvation had been presented to me. And I remember not accepting or rejecting it on the spot. I remember just being kind of baffled and surprised and just really having to mull it over for a few days. So if there was a moment where I was saved, it was sometime shortly after that. But I also think that there was certainly a process where things had to change, habits had to change, more importantly, attitudes had to change. But for some reason, I was the sort of person that was not going to accept those things on the word of a pastor or a uh, layman. I was just going to have to be very thoroughly persuaded from really an intellectual and logical standpoint Mm. that these statements were reliable before I was ever going to really start to allow my heart to be changed. So, Mm. Okay. Okay. I I find that really interesting because the message that I was receiving, ironically, from the Southern Baptist Church or maybe through the medium of the Southern Baptist Church, and I really love how you stated that maybe it's not what was being taught, but it was what was being interpreted by my own internal monologue, Mm -hmm. was, yeah, a works-based salvation, was a performance-based salvation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think what turned me off to church and in my head to the Southern Baptist Church specifically is the exact same thing that you're vocalizing. Why do you think, if that's not actually what is being taught by these denominations, why do you think kids get that message in their head that we have to perform, that we have to seek salvation through works? Yeah, I mean, I think for starters, when we talk about the Southern Baptist Convention, we're talking about probably the largest evangelical denomination in the United States. 
And so another thing that sets the Southern Baptist Convention apart from other denominations is that they are locally and autonomously governed. So each individual Southern Baptist church does not report to, you know, like a hierarchy of church leadership that eventually answers to, you know, some leader of the Southern Baptist Convention. That's really not how that church works. And that's really probably a good and a biblical thing. There's definitely room for unity of belief, but there's also just a ton of variation. And so to me, when I look at all the denominations, the Southern Baptist Convention comes as close as any denomination, I think. But that being said, when you're talking about the largest denomination that is autonomously run at each local church, you're going to have a huge variety in there as far as the quality of churches. And you know, mm-hmm. I'm not negative, but for example, there are Southern Baptist churches that are excellent. And then there are Southern Baptist churches that you know, they might have a real problem with legalism, and mm. they might um, they might be King James only, and mm. you know, insisting that everyone in the congregation only mm. read one particular Bible translation. That's certainly not a stance of the Southern Baptist Convention, but you can find plenty of Southern Baptist churches that do take that stance. Mm. Um, so, you know, I would start off by saying that, and so I would say that. Yeah you know, to address typical Southern Baptist doctrine on this show is not necessarily the same as addressing what was practiced or preached at the church that you were raised in. Right, right. But we we need to make that distinction first. Now, as far as your question about why could a salvation of faith be preached and a salvation of works be heard, Mm. You know, even stepping away from the Southern Baptist Church, like like you said, you were raised Methodist and you received yeah. the same message. Yeah, uh, even if it wasn't being taught. I mean, I think for starters, it goes back to the Garden of Eden. I believe in a literal fall of man, and I think that when humanity for the first time violated God's laws, that we were corrupted in every sense imaginable, and probably even in ways that we don't fully understand right now. And Part of that is that we were corrupted morally and intellectually. So that's not to say that humans can't possibly reason or that people can't be smart or come to the right conclusions or anything like that. But I think that in our fallen state, we truly are less likely to be as in sync, so to speak, with God's will and what is truth and what is error. And so people are always, in a sense, going to hear what they want to hear to some extent. And so I think that, honestly, it is human nature Mm. to, in your mind, understand that we have to do certain things to earn Mm. our way into heaven. And it is completely counterintuitive the first time you hear that there is nothing you can do to earn your way into heaven. And salvation is something that simply can't be earned. And that is precisely why we are in need of a Savior who is Jesus Christ. So you look at the majority of faiths and worldviews, and all of them are going to, in some way, look inward and say, am I a good person or not? And they're going to treat it like a scale. And on Mm -hmm. one side, you've got the bad things you've done. On the other side, you've got the good things that you've done. And my point is that you look at a lot of the cults and really even a lot of the denominations within Christianity in the U.S. in particular, and a lot of it is legalism. A lot of it is a works-based salvation. So in my mind, You know, I believe that humanity's fallen, and I feel like the majority of people think that you have to do certain things or act a certain way to be able to earn your way into heaven or to be considered a good person. And the fact that so many people have fallen into that train of thought is precisely, in a way, what convinces me that it might not necessarily be true. So 
I think that, you know, we're talking about an issue of human nature. People want to believe that they can be a good person and that at the end that that will be what saves them. And interestingly enough, even, you know, atheists, for example, don't think that there's anything to be saved from. And when they die, they will just simply cease to exist, you know, worm food in a sense. They're going to rot in the ground and cease to exist. But even atheists tend to talk about the worth of people in terms of whether they're a good or a bad person. And the interesting thing there is that you just simply won't find hardly any people at all that will not claim that they are a good person. And even the people that concede that they could be better people are often going to also argue that they could certainly be worse. So I think that just it's human nature to believe that we are being uh, weighed by our moral decisions. And then within the context of that idea, simply that, you know, most people are generally good or at least, quote unquote, that I am a good person. Mm hmm. Yeah, everyone wants to believe that they're a good person, that's for sure, yeah. Everyone does want to believe that, and I will state here unequivocally that I am not a good person. I will state and the same thing. I, you know, I don't think that there are really any good people. Right. Um, you know, if there was ever a good person, it was it was Jesus, but kind of the buck stops there. So. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think that's a really good perspective on that, and... Also, maybe from my perspective, our culture kind of reinforces that and maybe that goes back to all those world religions and the conglomeration of all of them mm -hmm. building this kind of culture of works-based quote-unquote salvation or, or whatever terms those other religions or other worldviews would put it in. Yeah. As a culture, we're as self-worshipping as any culture at any point. I mean, even when you and I were kids, you were already getting participation trophies and um, just kind of a total lack of any objective standard of what people should and should not do. If there was one, it was simply you should do what makes you happy, and it's okay to be different. Diversity is a good thing. And, you know, they were certainly well-intentioned, but, you know, I'm not even sure all of that even holds water. Um, there are certain things that people shouldn't do, and there are certain things that people should, regardless of where they're from or what they look like or anything like that. And, it is probably thrilling and delightful to the devil himself that we have developed a culture where the focus is so much on us, even when it comes down to, am I a good person or should I be a good person? And really, even if you actually are a pretty decent person, if that is what you're primarily concerned about with, that's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is really not about us. It's about the works of one person, God's interaction with humanity, and what he has done to save people from their own sin and to reveal himself to us. And, mm -hmm. you know, if your idea of the gospel centers heavily around interaction with yourself, then you may have missed the point of the whole gospel. Yeah, that's not something that you hear a lot, but I, th I think that, yeah, you're bringing something to the surface that it's like an elephant in the room almost. It's an unspoken right. thing. And even like, you know, most worship songs in church are me-centric, you know. Right. While the, those things, you know, may be true and maybe in, in a moment of revelation or in a moment of synchronicity with God, you have that experience that, that God is there for you and that God is invested in you. Like, how far do you think that that goes healthily? Do you think that there is a place for that kind of gospel of it's about me and my relationship with God? Right. I think really, for starters, that the gospel is deeply personal mm. because, you know, it's between you and Jesus, really. So, you know, it's fine, but beyond that extent, 
I don't see much room for being me-centric in the gospel. Um, I mean, the first thing that I would want to consider there is, you know, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor. So really, you have a personal obligation within both of those commandments, but the important part of that first commandment is is God, your priorities. The second law, the emphasis there is on regarding others as more important than yourself. And the ultimate example we have of that is uh, the ministry of Christ. Jesus was the textbook example of what we would call servant leadership. He was a leader in that he constantly regarded others as more important than himself, and his you know entire life on earth was spent in service to others when it should have been the exact opposite. To have a person who, instead of being worshipped, is washing people's nasty feet or feeding people who are hungry or being crucified on our behalf by the Romans, you know, that is paradoxical almost. Yeah, absolutely. And this is getting a little bit more into doctrine. Do you see that event, that historical event of Christ's crucifixion as the moment when salvation became available? Do you think that salvation and knowing God and, you know, having access to God without a priest was available before Christ, or that historically that event had to take place in order to open that door? So I view the crucifixion of Christ, and also, you know, which of course is inseparable from the resurrection. Mm -hmm. But um, I view those two events as literal historical events, but what they really were was not the beginning of the possibility of salvation. What they were was the finalized establishment of God's new covenant. Mm. And at that point, it is not that salvation became possible for the believer for the first time in history, but it is the first time that salvation became possible for people through Christ, I think. So before you had the Mosaic Law, temple rituals, God had always made salvation possible to his people, but the terms of the agreement changed after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Okay. Okay. I see, you know, the cosmic Christ and the idea of the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world as being built into the way that God interacts with mankind. And as you would probably agree with this part with Old Testament ritual and Old Testament requirements pointing to Christ. They certainly do. And yep. in my mind, that points to Christ as a concept outside of time and a relational availability that was already built in. Would you disagree with that? Well, I mean, it kind of comes down to semantics when you're talking about the Trinity. I mean, if you're talking about any member of the Trinity, uh, you know, the Godhead, then you are talking about something that's eternal. And so, you know, again, I view this in terms of covenants between God and people. And salvation through Christ mm -hmm. was a new covenant. But if following temple ritual in the Mosaic law, um, if following the law given to Moses was a means of salvation before, then it was still, in a sense, salvation through Christ in that. Not mm -hmm. only did those mm -hmm. rituals and processes point towards Christ, 
and give Jews a way to understand them after the fulfillment of Christ's ministry. But also, I mean, in a way, salvation was through Christ at that time, just simply by virtue of the fact that salvation was through God at that time and Jesus was God. So, um, you know, when we get into the finer points, um, again, it probably is going to partially come down to semantics and what we've been taught. But yeah. Um, it's interesting that you would mention, you know, you keep mentioning this literal time place thing and whether it did or didn't have to happen the way that it did. And I think that the crucifixion and the resurrection certainly were literal. They mm-hmm. certainly did happen in history in the time that they were uh, described to have happened in, in the manner that the Bible describes them happening in and for the reason that the Bible describes them happening for. And I think the problem is that when you adopt any view other than that, then you are questioning the very standard by which we even know that there was a crucifixion or resurrection. You're questioning the methods by which we even know who Jesus was and what his ministry consisted of. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, My question is more so, did it have to happen right then and there? What if it happened 20 years later? You know, I've heard interesting facts about that before that, you know, of course, as the human population grows, it increases exponentially, right? I mean, the more people there are on Earth, the greater the rate that they can reproduce at. Right, sure. And, you know, I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but when you look at the generally accepted age of the Earth and about how long people have been around, the time that Jesus came at was pretty early on. As far as world population, you know, it was something like maybe 10%, you know, of the people that, you know, something like that. So in a way, um, Jesus came, you know, I mean, the way I see it is that God is sovereign yeah, and that um, the way that we know that Jesus had to be crucified when he was crucified is that that is when he was crucified. If it happened, then that's how it was meant to happen there. Yeah. You know, I mentioned at the very beginning here that there are really no, no accidents Mm. with an Mm -hmm. omnipotent Mm God. Um, And so, yeah, you know, it's also interesting. You look at where the crucifixion occurred and where civilization was kind of distributed yeah. at that point in human history. And the gospel began spreading virtually in the center of the world. I mean, if they went south, you had the Arabian Peninsula in, in Africa. Mm-hmm. If they went north, you had, you know, kind of like Russia, Turkey, Constantinople type area, okay. um, which was, you know, really kind of a hub of human ideas and commerce, all that kind of stuff. If you went west, you had Western Europe, and if you went east, you had Asia. Mm-hmm. So really, it kind of happened in the middle of the world during Pax Romana, when for the first time in human history, there was a widespread and effective and accessible road system that a person mm-hmm. could travel relatively quickly without total fear of being attacked or robbed on the way. You had for one of the first times in civilization, an extremely widespread language, which was Koine Greek. Um, it was really the perfect equation for a message to spread rapidly and effectively, mm. and it did, in spite of um, pretty rampant persecution on the people that were teaching it. Um, the initial spreading of the gospel message is, is honestly remarkable by any stretch of the imagination. So as far as the timing... And the location and the manner, it seems like maybe God knew what he was doing there. (laughs) Yeah, and that kind of leads into um, the doctrine of Calvinism. I know that you're a Calvinist, Mm -hmm. and um, 
could could you just for our listeners explain what that entails to you and what that means to you? Uh, and maybe even get in a little bit to um, the surrounding opposing perspectives mm-hmm. like Arminianism and maybe just elaborate on why that why Calvinism resonates with you. Yeah. So uh, the first time I heard about Calvinism was when I was, uh, you know, at Boyce College and um, or Reformed theology, if you will. Reformed theology is another term for that. Um, so Calvinism, in a way, is a system of theology, but more specifically, it is a perspective on the process of salvation and how a person is saved. And so one of the mm-hmm. reformers, John Calvin, had written um, kind of a commentary and a system of theology. And in that, he was propounding kind of what he thought were... Uh, biblical doctrines on how a person is saved and the way that God works in saving people. And he began to fo- uh, kind of build up a significant following. Um, at the time, there was a an opposing theologian, I believe his name was Jacob Arminius. And he um, essentially kind of got together and started to critique Calvin's theology. And mm. the followers um, eventually came to be called Arminians. And so it was a response to Calvinism. I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah. Arminian okay. was was a response to Calvinism before Calvinism was called Calvinism. Sorry, that's my basset hound howling in the background. Um, <laughs> Is he an Arminian? You know, I'm not sure. It sounds like he opposes your views. Eleanor opposes any trespassers in the front yard is what's going on. Oh, she. Excuse yeah. me. Eleanor. Settle down. It's all right. Nope. She's got other plans. So according to Calvinism, this barking is supposed to happen exactly right now. Oh, it was predestined. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, Unless you're an Arminian, in which case it was her choice. Do you think that the two can coexist? Do you think that there can be a paradox in which there is choice and predestination? It depends. So I was talking about the followers of Jacob Arminius kind of got together, and he had written a response to the views of John Calvin at that time. And his followers eventually condensed the views of Jacob Arminius into five major points. Okay. And so the leaders of the church at that time got together, and they decided that they had to examine the claims of Jacob Arminius and decide whether or not they were true, essentially. And okay. um, by examining the five claims of the Arminian theology, they composed five counterpoints in John Calvin's theology. And their conclusion was that Arminianism was essentially heresy and that it was unbiblical. And the five points of what eventually came to be known as Calvinism, the Mm. five points of Calvinism are kind of summarized by the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, I I think. So T would be total depravity, and that is the idea that the sin corrupted us to the extent that we are, spiritually speaking, totally depraved, and that we are born in a state of rebellion against God. And the implication there is that a person in their natural state simply will not accept God, will not be saved, is not capable Mm. of it. You would be unconditional election, and that is that before time existed, that God had chosen that there would be a group of people whom would— Specific people. Specific people who would be uh, predestined to salvation through Christ. L is limited atonement. That is in regards to what exactly Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross— 
everybody believes in a limited atonement to an extent, but the difference between Calvinistic and Arminian theology would be whether the atonement was limited in its efficacy or whether it was limited in who it would reach or who it would affect, essentially. So whereas an Arminian would argue that on the cross, Jesus did not actually achieve salvation for any single person. He actually mm. achieved the potential or possibility right. open to door. salvation, an open door to all who would believe and accept. And Calvinists believe that the atonement was actually effective enough that had it been God's will that every single person had been saved, that that certainly would have been possible hmm. because they believe that Jesus's death is of infinite worth. But they believe that it was a limited atonement in that when Jesus died on the cross, he actually fully achieved salvation for the elect, but only for those people. Hmm. So, you know, the difference would be that he either earned potential salvation for everybody or he fully and completely achieved salvation for people that were already predestined to believe in him. Um, so that would be limited atonement. The next would be, I believe, I, which is irresistible grace. Irresistible grace is that when the Spirit calls a person to repent and believe in Christ, that they have no choice, but they will obey. The grace of Christ is literally irresistible. P is perseverance of the saints. That can kind of basically be summarized in layman's terms as once saved, always saved. Once a person has come to salvation in Christ, God will see that work through till the end, until they're with okay. in heaven. That would be, you know, a very brief kind of explanation of Calvinism. And as far as um, whether or not Calvinism and Arminianism can coexist, I think probably no, that there are certainly elements of truth to each. So, for mm -hmm. example, um, when we say that God is sovereign— Arminians would argue that God is sovereign, but they make the exception and say, well, he's sovereign over everything except salvation. Hmm. So I would say that the philosophical problem you run into is if we're predestined and if God has determined these things, then how are we held morally responsible? And the Apostle Paul um, kind of addresses that question in Romans and says, when we ask, if God is sovereign, how can I be held morally responsible for my actions? Paul's response hmm. is, who are you to question God? Mm -hmm. So... That might not be a satisfactory answer to a lot of people, but I think that you do have to conclude that God is sovereign. You also have to conclude that we are morally responsible. So how can those two things exist? Mm, yeah. I'd say probably therein lies the paradox. But William Lane Craig and Alvin Plantinga are some philosopher apologists that have talked about the theory of like middle knowledge and have managed to try and get those things to work together, how God can be sovereign, yet we can be responsible. And it kind of comes down to God knowing what you will freely choose in any given situation. So he brings about situations that will cause you to freely choose what he has decided that you're going to choose. So it's sort of out, outside of time, almost. It is sort of out of time. And I mean, I, I don't think that's totally unfathomable. I mean, it's difficult to get your mind around, just like yeah. Trinity and other things. But really, you know, as the creator of time, God is not subject to it. Mm -hmm. And if God is all-knowing, then God knows what's going to happen before it happens. Then how can anything other than what God knows is going to happen, happen? God can't be right. wrong. So that is kind of what I tried to get my mind around when I was introduced to this theology. But what it ultimately comes down to is we have to accept the Word of God. And there are a lot of verses that appear to be in favor of Arminianism and verses that certainly appear to be in favor of Calvinism. For example, mm -hmm. Paul writing that we're predestined in faith. But ultimately, there are some much greater and more educated theologians than me who met a long time ago 
looked at the claims of Jacob Arminius and said, this is not biblical. You know, it's certainly possible that those guys were mistaken, Mm -hmm. but I think at the end of the day, there simply seemed to be more and stronger verses supporting Calvinism. So I have to reject Arminianism simply based on the fact that Calvinism, in all fairness, is objectively more biblical. But that being said, I honestly, I thank God that it's not a matter of salvation, that I can, Mm. I'm probably the only Calvinist at my church, to be honest. That's what I was going to ask you about is, do you see Arminians as heretics? Um, I think that Arminianism as a system can be heretical in some views in that it gives all the glory to man. And to me, it creates a situation in which people who have been saved could look down at people on earth from heaven and say, well, I'm glad I made the right decision, Mm. unlike those guys. Mm. Um, Whereas with Calvinism, Calvinism really gives all the glory to God. The process of salvation from start to finish was God's doing and therefore is to God's glory. So people would say, why would God be so cruel as to only save some people? Right. And. I would say, why would God be so merciful as to save anyone at all Mm. when none deserve Uh to begin with? So, you know, I certainly wouldn't call Arminians heretics to their face or anything. I mean, I think that was Uh inflammatory. And again, I think that that is certainly a reconcilable difference. I think the important thing is that if you can get together with somebody and agree that Jesus is Lord and that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other, that that's enough that you can kind of work things out from there. Mm Mm-hmm. Is that what allows you to relate with the people in your church? And it seems like a very deciding or decisive factor for you, the Arminian thought versus the Calvinistic thought. And yet, like you said, the majority of the members of the church that you choose willingly to go to are Arminians. Right. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing about Calvinism, you know, I read once that Calvinism is like underwear. You certainly need it, but nobody really has to know. (laughs) (laughs) So you say you're closet Calvinist. Um, I mean, I'm I'm not really a closet Calvinist in the sense that, like, the other deacons know that that's probably what I believe. My pastor certainly knows it, and what it has led to between me and my pastor is just constantly teasing each other. Mm. So, um, you know, we had a trunk or treat for some of the neighborhood kids uh, the Thursday before Halloween recently here, and, you know, I just wore plain, you know, just a normal outfit. I didn't dress up, and um, he said, where's your costume? And I said, well, I'm, I mean, I'm wearing one. I'm dressed as a Calvinist. <laughs> no, I said, I'm dressed as an Arminian. And he shrugged his shoulders and said, well, it's your choice. So <laughs> you know, we kind of go back and forth like that. But um, yeah. anyway, you know, I don't bring it up in Sunday school. Mm. There are so many misperceptions about Calvinism and what it means. So, mm. um, you know, people will say, well, if you think people are predestined, there's no point in missions, you know, for example which is patently false. But, you know, I'm not going to bring it up in Sunday school or when I teach the high schoolers that I want or anything, because, you know, honestly, there's just a lot of room for conflict there. They might go home and tell their parents that I'm a Calvinist, and then the parents are going to want to know why somebody who doesn't believe in missions is teaching their class. And, you know, things will just kind of snowball. Right, right. So, I mean, I think if you have a proper view of God's Word and scriptural inerrancy, and if you've done your homework, then Calvinism is going to be one of the conclusions that you come to. But that Mm. being said, whether or not a person agrees with Calvinism simply does not affect whether or not they are saved and whether or not they're in Christ. Mm. So I just try to not make it into a bigger deal than it is. I'm very aware also that those misperceptions exist because most people that argue fiercely against Calvinism or criticize it simply aren't particularly familiar with it. Mm. That's certainly not the case for everyone, but I would just say that if that person had a theological education 
or was more familiar with the entirety of Scripture, then they might still very well be an Arminian, but they probably wouldn't have developed such a character of Calvinism itself. So. Mm-hmm. As a Calvinist, would you say that those Arminians in your church are predestined to be Arminians? That it is God's will that they are Arminians? Mm, I would say, yeah, you probably have to conclude that to some extent. And I, and I also want yeah. to be clear here that no matter what system of theology you adopt, I think that because we're fallen and because we are not perfected in Christ yet, that there's not a single person on this earth who has every single theological answer. Amen. So, uh, yeah, not totally agree. Uh, so yeah, I mean, even even Calvinists that were predestined to be Calvinists are also going to be predestined to hold theological errors uh, in their mind, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So why why do you if if you have such theological differences mm-hmm. with the other members of your church body, what is it about your, the church that you're in that keeps you there? Um, I do appreciate my pastor. I feel like he preaches biblical expository sermons. I feel like the music is more traditional. We don't have a praise band, which isn't necessarily more biblical. It's just that I find the traditional hymns to just have. Um, such a rich theological complexity and depth that I feel like it's difficult for me to sing a hymn without actually worshiping. Mm. You know, it's a more traditional church. Um, I like the music there. The most important thing to me was the preaching. Um, the preaching is is really, you know, what it comes down to for me. That honestly is what I like about the church. But also I think that even if I wasn't brought to Boyce College to serve in the church and be paid for using what I learned in college— it certainly doesn't mean that I can't be a servant to the church. And when I came to my current church, the question that I was asking myself was, what do I have to offer this church? I feel like I had things that I could contribute as far as Sunday school and like the apologetics classes that I teach. And really, you know, when we go back to those two uh, greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you know, a lot of people that are fulfilling that commandment and sincerely love the Lord are not going to fit into the Calvinist or Arminianist camp. And uh, the second commandment, you know, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, doesn't have a Calvinistic contingency in there. It just says to love people. And I think that when you focus on those two things primarily, um, that the rest will fall into place as a result. Okay, cool. Excellent. And uh, something else that I wanted to ask you about that you had mentioned was like with the Trinity and with, you know, New Testament verses when Christ talks about sending out the Holy Spirit, sending out the helper. And of course, the Israelites had no concept of the Trinity. They're monotheistic. Mm -hmm. And they probably, if they were told about such a concept, would consider that polytheism. Right. So how do you react to the idea of Christ sending out the Holy Spirit? Is that him making it known to everyone? It's not a literal dispatch of an element of God into the universe? Yeah, I think it's another sign of a a change in the covenant between God Mm. and his people. And so I think that the Holy Spirit probably after Pentecost, that was the first time that the Holy Spirit's role in God's interaction with people had changed, um, where the Holy Spirit was going to empower people to fulfill the Great Commission. Mm. And that's not the only thing that the Holy Spirit does. Unfortunately, the Holy Spirit is kind of the... uh, you know, redheaded stepchild of the Trinity in American churches. Anyway, we really don't give the Spirit the yeah. credit it's due. And of course, the King James Bible isn't doing us any favors, calling him the Holy Ghost. Who right. knows how he is at church or just really hoping that the Holy Ghost isn't lurking beneath the church or something. But <laughs> nobody really wants to talk into a ghost. But uh, <laughs> well, I think um, 
you know, I think that of the many roles that the Spirit plays, you know, at Pentecost, that the Spirit was sent as the helper to enable and assist believers to obey the commands of God and to spread the gospel as Jesus commanded. But, you know, even before then, I mean, you have references to the Trinity in the Old Testament, and the word Trinity is not going to be anywhere in the Bible. Right. And it took a long time to come to an understanding of it. There was a lot of controversy, yeah. a lot of back and forth in church history. But, I mean, really nothing makes sense in monotheism other than a Trinitarian view, because if you believe that God created humans in his image, we are relational. Mm. And the relationship between the members of the Trinity has existed for eternity. And that is one of the ways that we're made in God's image is man was not made to be alone. You see the Trinity in the very very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 during the creation narrative where God begins to say, let us, for example, let us create man in our image. Okay, cool. Did you want to get into anything about like politics in religion and the place of having certain worldviews, mm-hmm. but then not necessarily applying them politically or, or mandating them politically? I mean, that's a, this is a gray zone for me. It's something that I've thought about a lot yeah. and have come to a ton of clear conclusions. I mean, one thing that I certainly came to realize while I was at school, and I think that a lot of Southern Baptists would agree with me, is that um, I certainly do support separation of church and state. Yeah. Um, but the problem is that in today's society, we perceive separation of church and state as the state being protected from religious people. And in reality, Separation of church and state was designed to protect the church from the government. So nobody wants religion by compulsion. You know, we don't want to have to be Anglican. We don't want to have to be Catholic. We don't want to have to be Muslim. We don't want to have to be atheist. We don't want to have to hold any religious or philosophical view. So I think that that's kind of a sad misperception that goes on today. Um, where, you know, everybody in America is thinking, thank God for separation of church and state. But most of them are probably thinking, thank God that that crazy church down the road can't legislate morality onto me. And I'm sitting here thinking, thank God that a certain moral system isn't required of me by law because I know it would be the wrong one. Get into the issue of there's no way to separate law from morality in a sense. I mean, all law is based on certain principles. And in the West, it tends to be based on Judeo-Christian principles, even things like, you know, cruelty to animals. And um, now there are much more specific policies that really don't have anything to do with moral decisions directly, but they do indirectly. I mean, you take, for example, a speed limit. There's not going to be anything in the Bible that tells you, you know, thou shall drive 70 miles per hour or less. But at the same time, the reason why we have the speed limit is to keep people safe within reason because we value human life and it's mm. not good for people to be able to kill others on the road. Right. So, you know, in a sense, law is generally going to be based on morality. And so that has always been the case. That will always be the case. And so the question is always, which morality are we basing it on? Um, at this point in our history, I would say that it's probably based more on kind of like secular humanism, something mm. like that. We, we value ourselves, but, you know, the problem is, is when you take God out of the picture, then what basis do you have to make those moral decisions on? I think that Christians have an obligation to elect officials and support laws that 
are at least somewhat of a reflection of God's law and what they know to be objectively right. And it's not because we believe that everybody should have to believe the same thing as us. It's just that, you know, there's this concept of postmodernism that everyone is right when it comes to morality, that everyone's worldview is equally valid and equally correct. I mean, you see those coexist. Or they can be learned from equally. Yeah. You see, everywhere you go, you see these coexist bumper stickers that show each, you know, religious symbol. They've got like a cross and the star of David and the, you know, the, uh, the symbol of Islam and all that stuff. And I, I always get irritated when I see those stickers because I secretly suspect that people are not wearing, you know, putting those stickers in their cars because they're acknowledging the fact that everyone should love everyone and that we should exist peacefully. I always get the vibe that they sport those stickers because they believe that religions should coexist because they're all equally valid. And that is one of the most absurd things that I've ever heard. Not all religions are logically coherent, and not all religions teach even remotely close to the same thing. So I think that that's a silly belief. Postmodernism, the idea that truth is relative, is itself ridiculous and self-refuting. And unfortunately, whether people realize it or not, we essentially live in a country that, to some extent, has embraced postmodernism. And yeah. so people say, you know, I don't, they would argue maybe, I don't think that Christians should consider their religious views when they vote or when they pick sides politically in America because, um, you know, it's not fair for any one religion um, to have more impact than another or be represented more than another in government. And I would say that I probably ultimately disagree with that because. Um, I believe in objective truth. I believe in objective moral truth. Do you believe and that all, all truth is objective? Do you believe that there's any room for subjectivity in truth and that some truth is objective? Not when it comes to morality, not really. No. Um, I mean... How about personal perspective? Or like uh, cultural perspective? I mean, it's going to be subjective how we interpret, but you know, ultimately I think God is going to look at things and they're either going to be right or wrong. It's either sin or it's not. Everything that we can think and do is either edifying and it honors Christ or, or it's not. And if it's not, it's a sin. Mm-hmm. That sounds like kind of um, like I'm reducing everything or simplistic, but really I think we have to come to that conclusion. And, you know, there's a difference between saying steak is the best food or uh, blue is the best color. There's a difference between saying that and saying murder is wrong. Yeah. There just is, and one is a subjective statement, and the other is an objective statement. And it, you know, it's interesting, you know, in your second interview with Alex, that um, you guys talked about the question of uh, is religion required for someone to be a good person? And mm-hmm. Alex, you know, came to the conclusion no, that it's not. And you know, I was listening and thinking to myself, really, that's the wrong question, though. If instead of religion you talk about the existence of God, then really what it comes down to is not so much can religion make someone a good person, because I don't really think there are any good people, but it comes down partially to, if God doesn't exist, is there any such thing as good? Hmm. How do we discern good and evil if there's no objective standard? How about not hurting others, or, you know, the golden rule? Yeah, and the golden rule, if God doesn't exist, is a subjective opinion. But what if it were elevated to a state of absolute with a capital A, like we elevate God to that state. How would you do that if God didn't exist? How would you elevate it and make it a capital A? 
And then the other part of that question is who would be the people that elevated it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, that kind of goes back to what you're saying about atheists even, you know, having a sense of morality and wanting to be good people and things like that. And I think that what that boils down to, what their metric is, Mm -hmm. is am I treating other people the way I want to be treated? Right. And that's and that's that's subjective. Mm -hmm. You know? Oh, oh, you're saying it's subjective because people want to be treated differently. Well, people want to be treated differently, but I'm just saying that within the context of an atheistic worldview, again, on what basis can you argue for an objective moral standard if God does not exist? Because whatever standard you have, it's it's going to be man-made. It's going to be subject to change. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if God doesn't exist, then what was wrong with with uh, you know with the Holocaust? Uh, what was wrong about that? Say, you know, and, and an atheist would say, well, it was wrong because it resulted in the death of millions of people. And I would say, and why is that a bad thing? And they would say, because we shouldn't kill people. And I would say, says who? Mm-hmm. You know, you just go around and around in a circle here. And again, I would ask, if God doesn't exist, how can we argue for objective moral values? Would you say then that sin is absolutely defined by what is handed down to us and has nothing to do with what is good for us? No, I wouldn't say that. Okay. I mean, I wouldn't say that. I would say that, you know, one of the things about sin is that, you know, it has two facets to it. One is what, you know, what is honoring to God and what obeys God's will. But the other is also what is good for us. I think there are a lot of things that God commands us to do because they will be to our benefit. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not, you know, if you're looking at it, you know, one way to look at it is it's like if you walk across the street into oncoming traffic with your eyes closed, God doesn't kill you. (laughs) You know, it's not, it's not like God is going to kill you because you walked across the street. It's that if you do that, you might get killed. Uh Uh-huh. It's like jaywalking. Like if you're not supposed to jaywalk and it breaks the law, uh. you know, I mean, in a sense, then you're not going to find a verse about jaywalking in the Bible. Right. But in a sense, and if it's against the law, then it's a sin to jaywalk. And so the consequence of that sin is that you might get hit by a car. Right, right. So yeah. I think that, you know, when we do something, when we commit a sin, I think that we sin primarily against God. It's uh-huh. also possible to sin against ourselves, but yeah. primarily we sin against God. And more often than not, whether we realize it or not, you know, the consequence of that sin will affect us negatively. Right, yeah. I think that kind of goes back to the Holocaust with, like, even apart from murdering people, well, why is it wrong to murder people? Who said it's wrong to murder people? You're hurting the surviving people also. You're, you're hurting people that are living. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that the people who were responsible for some of the more, you know, like the horrific uh, actions that were carried out and everything— I think that that hurt them in a sense. Um, of yeah. course, one yeah. argue. Of course, one could argue that they deserved whatever punishment they got as a result of committing those atrocities. Mm. But you know, the difference is that I'm going to sit here and say that God exists, and I can objectively condemn those things because we're created in man's image, and murder is wrong. But I think, from an atheistic perspective, you have nothing to go off of but your opinion. And no matter how many people happen to agree on that opinion, if every single atheist in the world got together and agreed that the Holocaust was wrong, it would still be subjective. You know, the popularity of an opinion doesn't dictate its veracity. Okay. 
Yeah, I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's a question that I've spent a lot of time thinking about is, you know, William Lane Craig has actually turned it into a logical statement when he argues for the existence of God. And he says, if objective moral values exist, then God exists. Objective moral values do exist. Therefore, God exists. Mm-hmm. And so does that necessitate the Christian God? No. Not that, okay. not that, not that formula. logic. Okay. Okay. But, you know, again, I think you look at the spectrum of human history and you have certain principles that remain consistent regardless of time, location, yeah. you know, your financial or social status. It's just, you know, there's, there's just most places in the world. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are, or what you believe. If you see a baby about to fall into a well, you're probably going to go over and grab it so it doesn't fall into a well. Right. What if a person who doesn't believe in God saves that baby? Yeah, then they then they did the right thing for the wrong reason. Well, do they really believe in God and they don't know it? It's irrelevant. The question isn't whether they believe in God or not. The question is, was it objectively good or bad to save the baby? So I think plenty of people concede that objective morality exists and they still deny that God exists. Mm -hmm. And I think also that um, some atheists that I've argued with um, deny that morality is objective, but they simply can't support the argument. It just doesn't hold water. Um, I mean, Mm -hmm. really, they just kind of end up repeating the same platitudes and they just don't really get around the issue of the fact whatever they try to claim is an objective moral standard always ends up being subjective. And when you argue that our morality or our sense of morality is an evolutionary trait that aids in survival, I mean, I think that kind of falls flat in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. too. If you're starving, it's not really to the survival, you know, to the to your survival benefit, not right, to steal. Right, right. There are times where acting in a way that you feel God compels you to act is going to make things harder, not easier. Yeah, so. sure, 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 yeah. Do you see circumcision as a uh, moral issue? Um, well, it would have been for Israel when they were commanded to be circumcised. Mm. Saying that it was for Israel when they were commanded to be circumcised sounds like a subjective statement. Well, it would have been objectively true at the time, but the issue you run into is that, um, I mean, again, in a context of covenants, you know, if it is true that ancient Israel was not supposed to eat shellfish, mm-hmm. is it true now that I sin every time I have crab legs? Or is it that Christ obeyed the law on my behalf and I'm no longer held to the Mosaic law because mm-hmm. I'm not a covenant? Or is it that they didn't have the methods to clean shellfish or to avoid the diseases that would have been spread by shellfish? Or, you know, eating two-hooved animals, eating pigs and stuff like that. Yep, you know. Pork. Are there, are there practical reasons behind it? I think that, the, yeah, I mean, I think there certainly are. I mean, God is a God of order and logic, and I, I don't think that there's, there's some things in the Bible that have always popped out at me as extremely random and arbitrary mm. and difficult to understand. But I'd say that's probably a result of my lack of understanding and not because God is truly random or arbitrary. Right. But um, as far as circumcision sounding like a subjective statement— I would say that there are arguments to be made that baptism is now the sign of the covenant. Mm. So um, I think that what is objectively true now is that there's freedom in Christ. And I don't think that it would be wrong 
to circumcise your child if you felt that that would be what sure. God wanted. And I also don't think that God is going to hold it against you if, if you didn't circumcise your child because uh-huh. we're on a new covenant. Okay, so objective truth in your pers- – I'm just trying to state this back to you. So objective truth is absolute, but it can change. Um, no, that's probably not the correct way of looking at it. Okay. Yeah. But circumcision was – an objective truth, and now you're saying baptism is the replacement for that objective truth. That sounds like a change. No, I would look at it as in both cases that the objective truth is that God's people are to be set apart. So it's behind it's behind the symbol. It's based on an objective eternal truth, but mm, okay. you know, at one at one point, the way one of the ways that they were set apart was through circumcision, when nobody else in the world did that. Now, here in North America, I mean, the status quo is to circumcise every baby boy, so how, did, how would that set Christians apart today? Right, okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the truth there is still that we're to be set apart, but we're to be set apart now through our words and our actions, uh, and not, not the way that our bodies are physically. Okay, cool. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's a refreshing take on objective truth. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? We're over an hour. Um... You should give people a chance to respond. What do you mean give people a chance to respond? Like both of your brothers made statements like that I don't agree with. And I feel like Mm. for the sake of you being a good interview, you're just like kind of like, okay. And you're not going to push back that much. But Mm. now I've probably made statements about objective morality that, for example, Alex is not going to agree with. And so I would say it might be interesting at some point to have more than just you and one interviewer, you be more of a moderator and have somebody on the show or if they want to respond and like they might hear it and shrug their shoulders and be like, yeah, well, that's just like your opinion, man, and not really care about it. But, you know, mm. if somebody wants to respond, we can always certainly continue to interact on that stuff. Yeah, I like the idea of recurring guests. And I actually plan on starting a segment with my dad where he comes back on and I'd like to, you know, check back in with him on certain things. And, um, I, I'd love to, you know, add you to, to that list of people. Cause I need segments yeah. for my show. All these podcasts have segments. I need segments. Yeah. We could come up with a catchy alliterative phrase, uh, like, um, doctrine with Drew. Doctrine with Drew. Or Calvinist crap. Calvinist crap. I would probably, yeah. I mean, I'd be interested in responding to like current events or current opinions, like kind of like offering a Christian perspective on mm-hmm. like events in the news and stuff. And then, of course, I'm also interested in, I mean, anything apologetics related. Yeah. Is that part of the way that you define yourself as a person? Is that part of your identity as an apologeticist? Well, a small and probably in the scheme of salvation, probably a somewhat unimportant part, but part of my identity is as a theologian. Every decent theologian is an apologist, and every apologist is a theologian. Can you define the term? Apologetics is the uh, the defense of the Christian faith. Just plain and simple. But I mean, it's, yeah, it's based on the Greek word apologia um, that is, in, in its original use, was almost a legal defense. Like, uh, if a person was accused of a crime... Um, the accuser would make their case, and then the accused could make an apologia, basically. Okay, cool. When I majored in apologetics, I actually had to spend more time learning about other worldviews than mm. I did about biblical Christianity right, yeah. in apologetics sense. classes. So, I mean, we had to right. read read all kinds of Richard Dawkins and read the Quran and all kinds of stuff like that. So, Yeah, 
Maybe this is something for another segment. Maybe it's something for a later time. But how do you feel about evolution? I think microevolution is a fact. And it's an observable fact. I mean... Uh But you don't believe in the Big Bang? I believe in the Big Bang. I'm not sure that that's the same as evolution. Okay. I'm skeptical about macroevolution, but kind of my stance on that is that the purpose of the creation narrative in Genesis is not to explain how and why and when the earth was created. It is to explain who created it. And the Bible is not and is never claimed to be a science textbook. Amen, dude. Totally. Yeah. I would have found out that macroevolution occurred without a doubt, which I'm still skeptical of. But if I were... were to be proven to me beyond any reasonable doubt, it really wouldn't affect my faith much at all. I just, I don't honestly see that mm. as a hill worth dying on. Um, I think that God created the heavens and the earth, and I think that God created humanity, and I don't claim to have been present or yeah, right. or be scientific enough to fully understand how it could be that God brought that about. But I know that in relation to the age of the earth, I think that, you know, if you're from a creationist standpoint, they, they kind of get laughed out of the room quite a bit. But really, if if you think about Adam and Eve, I mean, the moment that Adam existed and was brought into existence, uh-huh. he probably appeared as, as a man in his prime, like his physical prime. He probably looked like he was 20 years old. So Adam looked like he was 20 years old when he was two seconds old. If God created him from the dust and breathed the breath of life into him as the Bible says, he did so if that's the case how you know creationists and i'm not really citing one way or the other but it has been pointed out by creationists that if adam could have been created with the appearance of age why could the same thing not apply to the earth um again it's not you know not really pertinent to salvation not exactly one for me so yeah i feel like people get caught up on that very easily and uh when it comes into biblical inerrancy yeah that's something I'd be interested to talk about sometime too. I mean, that's a big issue. That's that is really, I think, the, one of the things that sets the Southern Baptist Church apart from most others is that the Southern Baptist Church, its sole authority is Scripture. Hmm. Yeah, and that's a Calvinist thing too, right? Yes. Yes, yeah, so Scripture. Yep. It was a Reformation thing, really. So there's yeah. plenty of Arminians that would argue that their sole spiritual authority is God's word, but Mm -hmm. the biblical case in favor of Calvinism is just, to be blunt, overwhelming. I want to recommend a video to you. It's so long. It's like an hour and a half long, but it's this super freaking smart professor. The underlying theme is this whole thing of church versus science. That's an absurd fight, I think. It's a false dichotomy. Yes, it's a false dichotomy. Exactly. I mean, the reason we have universities and hospitals is because of the church. Right. And the very first scientists yeah. were, in a sense, theologians that were trying to learn more about God's creation. Yeah. It's a, it's a false dichotomy. I can't find it right now. I'm going to, I'll find it and I'll email it to you. Yep. And then I'd like to get your response on it. All right, girl. Sounds good. Holla. Cool, man. Holla, holla. holla. All right. Love you, dude. Thanks. Love you, too. I'll talk to you later. All right, man. Talk to you later. There you go. That was my interview with Drew. I hope you enjoyed it. In the interest of time, I will do this very quickly. You can go to patreon.com slash air of grievances. You can go to soundcloud.com slash air dash of dash grievances. You can go to facebook.com slash air of grievances. You can leave me a voicemail just like, was it true? Was it not true? We'll never know. The number is 612-460-0364. 
be sure to give me a call, leave me some responses, give me some feedback, give me some insight, give me some info, what you think. Dame my gasolina. All right, talk to you later. Love you. Bye. This is Lorraine Treeport, and I was calling about that pod blast you've been putting out called the Air Grievances. I've been listening lately, and other than a little too much views from the liberals, I think it's pretty good. But, you know, one thing that could make it easier, there's this fella down there from Oldham County. His name's Andrew Manning, and, uh, you know, I really think uh, really think he could bring something special to the show for uh, everyone out there that's been listening uh, you know, he, uh, uh, he, uh, he, you know, a lot of the words that he uses, I don't exactly understand, but I tell you what, man, he's smart as a whip, okay? First of all, and second of all, uh, you know, I've seen that guy's plumbing work. He can unclog a toilet just by looking at it, I swear. And I've seen what he can do, you know, uh, plumbing wise, and to be honest, it reminds me of the uh, ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Uh, and, you know, and also, uh, they say he's mean as a snake in a fight. You know, either way you look at it, he's really, uh, really a Renaissance man. And I think, uh, I, you know, I think honestly, uh, you know, you're really missing out if you don't have him, uh, uh, there on the show. Anyway, uh, I'll be, uh, listening, uh, listening for him to be on there. Uh, see you later. Uh, yes, hello, uh, hello. This is, uh, Rudolph Eubanks, uh, calling from Newark. And uh, I've been listening to the show lately, and uh, I was wondering if maybe for your next guest appearance, uh, maybe, you know, you could have, uh, like, Andrew Manning on. I don't know if you've uh, uh, read uh, any of his prose on the, on the Facebook or not, but uh, uh, the... The depth of theology, uh, the the brevity, uh, truly uh, a truly blinding intellect, really, and uh, and I think that uh, that the show could be greatly strengthened uh, by by his presence, and uh, also I really liked everything your dad had to say. <laughs> Hey, baby, listen, this is Terry down here in Anderson County. Listen, you got to get Andrew Manning on that show. One of the best things I heard all year, but seriously, that man, he walking the walk, he talking the talk. Come on, boy, don't hold back. Just get him on there, all right, now? Hello, this is Giovanni from San Diego, and I've been listening to Air of Grievances lately and had a uh, friendly and helpful suggestion for you. There is a gentleman by the name of Andrew Manning, and let me tell you, in San Diego, there are so many nice guys, but Andrew in particular is seriously such a nice guy. And I just really think that the show would be better if you had more nice guys on there, and Andrew's definitely one of them in my book. Um, Let's just say... You should seriously, seriously consider having Andrew Manning on the show. Hello, this is Donald Trump calling for Caleb Rowe, President Donald Trump. Listen, I've been paying attention to the podcast, airing of grievances, and everybody here knows, okay, that uh, viewership is down, okay? 
listeners, they're shrinking. Okay, it's very bad. Everyone here is very tired of the fake news. It's disgusting. It's pitiful. It's laughable. Okay, it's disgusting. What you need to do, you need to make this show great again. Get Andrew Manning on there. He's an intellectual powerhouse. Okay, he's got a very good brain. Top-notch individual. I highly recommend it. And, you know, let's just say I don't make threats lightly, but, you know, if you don't have Andrew Manning on air of grievances, uh, things will get very bad and you will regret it, okay? That I can tell you. 